Hi, and welcome to Producer Says What. I'm your host, Pierre Jackalone. Welcome back. And today we're going to talk about general uh, recording preparation. And uh, I want to kind of hit it from the musician's perspective on this episode. So, um, you know, producers and engineers, uh, you know, you may be able to glean something from this too. Or, you know, we can compare notes. What do you tell musicians before they come in? Uh, I just want to go over some of the things I like to tell them and uh, and just sort of go over the entire process because, uh, you know, a lot of first-time people out there in terms of going to a pro studio, and let's let's try to demystify the process a little bit. Uh, all right, uh, so let's get started. <laughs> so the first question, uh, I think, uh, yeah, let's start big. Let's, pull, let's, let's start at 50,000 feet. Why are you recording? Uh, and that's a really important question uh, to, to answer answer in your own minds. Uh, some people need a demo just to get gigs. Uh, other people, uh, you know, may have a contract. You know, this could be a signed artist, and this is, you know, this is a professional undertaking uh, in the dictionary definition of the word. Uh, they owe somebody you know, a product uh, that they've, that they're contracted to. Uh, and, you know, and then other people, uh, maybe it's just for posterity. Maybe they're just doing it to do it. You know, um, I certainly have artists who, you know, just have, I have a number of artists actually who just have a stack of songs and they just want to see them, you know, recorded. They just want to be able to listen to them and share them. Um, and these days, as a matter of fact, that's becoming more and more common. Um, and you know what? Uh, all of those reasons are great. You know, there's no bad reason to uh, to record, but it does make a difference, uh, you know, into uh, how much you want to invest in it and, you know, budget. And, um, you know, so that's... Uh, it's just important to get that clear in your mind and to share that with whoever your service providers or your producer, your engineer, whoever, you know, let them know what you're going for because that can help guide uh, decision-making as well. Um, so, okay. Uh, this time uh, I'm, I'm trying to get better at this podcast thing. This is episode number two. So I actually made myself a little bit of a list to follow. So it'd be a little more organized than, that, than my first episode. <laughs> uh, so uh, the second thing I had in mind was budget. Uh, and of course, uh, um, you know, uh, the, everybody thinks about budget as, uh, you know, I have this much money, period, end of story. Um, and I think a better way to think about it is, um, you know, is right in reference to the first point of what do you want to do? Why are you doing this? And, um, you know, that can affect your budget, you know. So, for instance, uh, if you just need to get gigs, you need a recording right away. And it isn't even about the money. It's more about the time. And, and and you know, the fact that not having a recording is keeping you from doing what you really want to do, you know, and play gigs. Um, and you're not looking to make, you know, um, you know, uh, Dark Side of the Moon. You're looking to get gigs. And so, uh, so you know, um, so that's that would uh, inform uh, your budgeting process. Uh, and then the other way to think about it is, well, okay, so maybe you maybe the opposite is true. Maybe you're doing this for posterity, in which case, um, yeah, may, let that inform your budget too, and not just of money, but of time. You know, so I mean, I have artists who take who have taken a long time to make a product, and you know, and our project, and that's perfectly fine. You know, um, one year, six months, two years, three years, you know, as long as you get it done. 
what difference does it make? You know, when you're listening to it, when it's over, and whenever when anyone else is listening to it, uh, you know, they don't care. They don't know how long it it took to make. And you know, it starts to you'll always remember, but even that element fades in your own mind as time goes by, and you're listening to it. All you know, you, it's just about the music, really, in the end. And um, and also raises an important and interesting point, really, which is that. Uh, you know, since the all music is being stored digitally now, uh, all music in you know in in a general sense is forever. You know, uh, there's absolutely no reason why every single piece of music that's recorded in uh, in a studio today uh, won't outlive the person making that music and and be for future generations even. Uh, so. You know, if you're if you're making this for posterity, that's that's not a joke. I mean, you know, that there might that might be your posterity. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, you may have uh, a great 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 grandkid doing uh, you know, a report for his middle school on on the music that you made. You don't know. Um, so uh, again, um, instead of saying like, "Well, I have X amount of dollars to do this." You know, I think it really is worth thinking about why you're doing it and, and and what your expectation is of how you know how fast you want to get it done, um, and, and also uh, then think about the scale of of what you're trying to achieve. So, for instance, uh, maybe you have you know 60 songs that you want to record, <laughs> but um, you know obviously you're not going to record 60. But you know at first blush, the 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 best. Uh, you know, thought might be, well, I'll record 10. Well, that's fine, but if you're going to do it in a manner that's sort of what I would call worth doing, you know, doing it well, that's still really expensive. You know, that's still a big chunk of change and time invested. And and if there's something that you don't do all the time, um, you know, then, uh, you know, this is going to be a learning process for you. Uh, you're going to get better as you go along. So song, you know, number six is not going to be, you're not going to be the same artist you were on song number one, uh, unless this is something you, you've been doing your whole life and that you, and that, you know, that you're seasoned at. But, um, you know, it's going to be a process of discovery, you know, uh, because it's, you don't know how to do it. You haven't done it before, or at least you haven't done it a lot before. Um, so, uh, with that in mind, I would say, you know, at the very least, break it into smaller digestible pieces, you know. Um, either start with a song or an EP is very popular. Uh, in fact, these days, you, you know, you see less and less uh, full-length albums, you know, so uh, eight songs or more, say, and we see an awful lot of EPs, so uh, three, four, five, six even songs uh, might be considered an EP. Um, I personally think of it as like four or five. Um, and, you know, I, I think of it from, the, I like to think of it from the perspective of a gigging band that's trying to sell a product. So if you have a CD or a download or whatever that you're trying to sell, uh, people are kind of used to being uh, charged a dollar per song thanks to iTunes and whatnot, um, although they're kind of not used to being charged anything these days. But but let's take a dollar per song as a benchmark. So if you do uh, five songs, easy, five bucks. You know, that's an easy thing for people to reach for in their pocket at a gig. Uh, or even better, six songs. They get a song for free. It's like a value, right? So, um, so that kind of 
thinking ahead about you know how you want to structure your project is helpful and important um and that that can you know that applies up too if you're doing a full album you know 10 songs or maybe make it 12 and charge ten dollars you know something along those lines um but just think about where you're going to end up with it you know uh, when it's all over uh from the beginning and and you know you have just the more uh the more you can give yourself uh, guardrails and guidelines and goals, uh, you know, any project benefits from that. So, okay. Um, so, the, uh, just want to uh, touch on one uh, quickly on conceptually. When you're going into a recording studio, particularly a good recording studio, but really any recording studio, the most important thing to remember is that this is an entirely different arena than prep, than rehearsing, than recording. This sounds obvious, but I, I seriously, I see this every day. Uh, musicians coming in, and I think part of it is a nervous reaction. You know, like they're they're uh, everybody is afraid to test their own limits. Everybody's afraid to uh, you know the, to. Uh, See what they're truly capable of, because they might fail, and they, or it might not be what they what they hope it'll be, and and it's a little it's scary to test your limits, and uh, you know the recording studio uh, in that way the red light is can be scary, and you know. Um, and you know, just you know, everybody gets nervous when they're recording. The same way everybody gets nervous on stage. It's just about uh, the, you know the people that do it well manage to channel that energy and channel that nervousness and make it work for them instead of against them. And but that takes practice. You know, that doesn't come and you know, doesn't usually come naturally. I guess for some people it does. But um, and the, and the nervous energy in the studio is really a different flavor than the one on stage. They're not the same. You know, um, when you're performing, it's about uh, outward energy and, and connecting to the people directly in front of you. Uh, when you're in the studio, it's it's much more zen, if you will. It's it's internal, uh, and it's connecting with yourself inside. And 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 it's it's about having a deep focus uh, without you know and and turning off. The critic, you know, it's 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 that balancing act of, of uh, you know, the critic gets their pound of flesh in the studio. Like you know, what, what, if it's wrong, it's wrong, and and it's really obvious that it's wrong because the recording is high quality and it's clear. But you need to turn off your inner critic and and just go and just be yourself. I mean, it's uh, as a musician, it's taken me years. It's taken you know um, to get to the point where I start to you know, trust my own voice in the studio. And, and you know, if I do something that, that at first feels like, well, maybe that was a mistake, I, I force myself now to, you know, stop and listen to it. Because, you, you know, uh, it's happened enough times where, uh, you know, either because of time constraint or someone else in the room telling me, no, that was great, keep it. And then, you know, something that I thought was a mistake over, you know, after listening to it for a little while, uh, you know, grows on me, and then I can't think of that part any other way. That's happened to me enough times that it's built a sense of trust uh, in what's coming, you know, out of my fingers as a guitar player or bass player. And um, but that doesn't come easy. That trust you have, you know, you have to build it like any trust. And um, so. 
again, it's a microscope. You know, you're not going to blow anything by anybody. You know, I get people coming in saying, well, what if we just, you know, sink it in the mix a little bit, you know, and you, know, you won't hear all the details. Uh-uh. You're going to hear all the details. You know, if it's a good studio, if it's a good recording, if it's a good mix, you're not going to miss it, you know. And here's the other point, that, and this is actually, this is the really important spin on that. If you don't want to hear something, get rid of it. You should not have, I mean, think about uh, when they make movies, you know, like, you think there's anything in that frame that they don't want to be there, you know, ever in the entire movie, you know, um, you know, there's no blurring in the background, there's no, you know, it's, if you want a background texture, then great, but that's, be specific about that, you know, um, but there's no hiding in a recording, and if you're thinking, if, if, if anything in you is thinking, well, what if we hide this a little? Get rid of it. Redo it. Rethink it. It, you know, it's not right. It doesn't belong there. Um, and trust that instinct too. Um, so, I mean, editing is one of the most important parts of recording. So, actually, and that is a perfect segue into my next bullet point for, <laughs> for myself, which is uh, the stages of production. Okay, so uh, let's go over that because, again, I get people coming in and, you know, they've heard these terms. They don't necessarily know what they all are. And, and, and again, they really don't know what to expect. So let's break it down. Um, so I, I look at it as, you know, more or less five-ish major stages of production. So let's, let's bullet point them. So um, maybe six. Okay, so uh, let's say pre Pre-production, and I'm leaving out writing as, as a stage of production, but let's, just, let's assume that that's been done. But pre-production, so that's everything from working out the arrangement, you know, rehearsing, practicing, and we're going to get into more detail in a minute about this, but all the things you do before you hit the studio, and they're, that's vitally important. Um, you know, recording is a chain of events, and... You know, um, it, it's the, the earlier in the process, in a way, the more, uh, the higher priority uh, the job is. So, the, say the most important thing is to write a good piece of material, then the next most important thing is to rehearse it and practice it and, and arrange it properly. The more you do write early on, the quicker, easier, and better the next stage down the line goes. And that's just true all the way down. I mean, you know, there's a running joke in, in recording of fixing it in the mix. And, well, why is that a bad thing? Because it means you screwed up everything beforehand. And, and fixing in the mix means it's not really going to be fixed. You know, it's kind of like duct tape it in the mix kind of thing. <laughs> you know, it's not... Um, so uh, that's why we don't want to do that. So uh, pre-production, vitally important. So next stage, uh, so that's number one. Let's say recording, number two. All right. So uh, and that's all about, uh, you know, having everything, having being mentally, physically prepared yourself as, as a performer, uh, your instrument being ready, being in a good room. Uh, appropriate for the music, having, um, you know, and then down the chain, uh, microphones, everything else. Uh, and what you hear in your headphones is vitally important. Um, and, you know, all of these things take time. They take energy. In the studio, time is money, so they're going to take money. 
Um, you know, every thought that you ever had of, well, we'll just whip into the studio and we'll be done in an hour. This is pushing back on that. This is if you care, if you want to make a good product, you know, uh, all of these things have to be attended to. It can take a little while to get a good headphone mix, and it's worth every, you know, every second of that time invested. Um, you know, uh, something might be buzzing that never buzzed before, you know? <laughs> Did you change the batteries in your active pickups? You know, on and on. Um, okay, so number two is recording, uh, right? Um, so uh, number three, editing. All right, it's pretty rare that you get, you know, an album or a piece of work recorded that doesn't need some kind of editing. Uh, it might be... Uh, you know, uh, a bad note here and there. It could be uh, a compilation of takes, very common, particularly with vocals. You know, I never just, hardly ever just do one take of vocals. I mean, even if somebody knocks it out, we then we get a, you know, and you get lightning in a bottle, they call it. Uh, you get a safety, you know, or maybe two safeties, because <laughs> you never know when you're, you know, when you, when, you, when all the pieces come together, something might not work and you want to have options. Um, so editing, and then, you know, and then there's just performance editing. Maybe, maybe a pitch wasn't right, maybe timing needed to be fixed. So uh, editing can be, you know, uh, a small thing, but it can be a major thing too. Um, you know, uh, so that's, it's, you need to budget for it. You need to consider that it's going to be a stage of production. Um, it's not nothing. Okay, uh, now we're getting into the parts that would be called post-production. I mean, editing is post-production, but real post-production, which generally means uh, what I see time and time again is that musicians haven't budgeted for it. You know, uh, I get people coming in thinking, like, yeah, we got, we booked uh, four or five hours to record, and what, you can mix it in about an hour and we'll be done? Yeah, okay. So um, we can, but, you know, you're, you're shortchanging that, the side that you don't understand that isn't, that's the part that you're not doing. Um, so the mixing would be the next stage of production. So in multi-track recording, even if a band performed live, we usually took all the different elements to separate tracks, you know, to and had them isolated. And on a drum kit, that can be a lot. I mean, there's a lot of value to using fewer mics on a drum kit, but you know, um, you know, honestly, uh, when I don't know the drummer and I don't know the song, I want as much flexibility as possible. So I'm going to throw you know, a lot of mics on the kit because I don't know. You know, maybe uh, I, I've run into everything, you know, uh, drummers who have, who don't hit hard enough or who, um, you know, uh, you, it's, you don't know what you're going to be dealing with. So I'll typically have, you know, between uh, close mics and room mics and, and uh, I mean, I'll have like 12, 13 mics on a drum kit. You know, sound crazy? Uh, maybe, but it gets me, you know, what I need, you know, in the end. Uh, I developed a system uh, a few years ago of uh, three mics on a kick drum. Uh, you know, one on the front head, uh, one inside, and then a sub kick, which is an interesting product uh, that, you know, we'll talk about some other time. But um, And it gives me sort of a top, middle, and bottom uh, from uh, miking on the on the kick drum so before i even reach for an equalizer or a compressor i can i can balance those things and 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 also if uh if a song turns out to be something different than i thought it was going to be you know if it wants you know a warmer bottom end or something or, or a tighter 
or a more aggressive bottom end, I have those mics to play with. So uh, that flexibility is where that idea came from, and it's been very successful for me. Um, but, uh, you know, mixing, uh, you, you know, I, I think of it as uh, electronic orchestration. You know, this is, you know, where we put all the pieces together in the most coherent way. And this is what's going to make you sound, you know, like you really know what you're doing. You know, when, when a band is playing together uh, in a rehearsal room, you know, or even on a gig, depending on if anybody's actually running the monitors, you know, uh, how you guys hear each other is almost, can be almost random, you know, and it's kind of like, well, can I hear myself and the one other instrument that I need as a reference, you know, can I hear the, the kick drum and the vocal, you know, just so that I, enough so that I can play my part is usually the standard. Um, so this is entirely different. This is this is about okay. How do we? You know, now we're going to put all these elements together to create, you know, really an illusion. We're going to create, you know, as um, three dimensional an image as we possibly can sonically to come out of two speakers that will, you know, reach out and embrace the listener and and affect them emotionally. And that's no small task. It also, uh, another thing to think of is that with mixing, uh, that's the moment at which you're really taking full responsibility for every single note that's played. Every drum, every, you know, every note. Uh, no, you can't have, you know, a, a few notes that drag. No, you can't have a few notes that rush. No, you can't be sharp. No, you can't be flat. You know, these things, uh, because all of those things distract from the work of art, distract from the song, distract from the emotional impact, you know, uh, unless it doesn't, <laughs> unless, uh, you know, unless it's a blue note and, uh, and it's supposed to be bent that way and whatever. But, uh, you know, uh, things, anything that happened without artistic intention, we're going to try to, you know, iron out and fix. And um, a general thought about engine, audio engineering is, most of what we do is fix, you know. I mean, when the band comes in that's just slamming and doesn't need anything fixed, well, you know what? A monkey could engineer that. Like, you know, it's really, uh, then, then it's not really up to the engineer anymore. You know, you stick microphones in front of them, you make sure that the levels are safe, and, you know, everything else kind of takes care of itself. And that doesn't happen very often. Um, the, the closest that ever happens usually is with when you have, like, a great jazz band. But um, it's pretty rare. Generally... You know, you're creating uh, the perfect balance that doesn't, you know, exist in the rehearsal room, and you know, it's work. It's a lot of work. You know, it's deciding on all the uh, reverbs, um, or, you know, or no reverb, or whatever. You know, whatever the decisions are going to be, um, and most of all, it's uh, you know, very often, it's creating a dynamic that wasn't there in the playing. You know, so many performers um, just sort of uh, don't dynamically move, um, particularly in rock music. Um, you know, they're just kind of chopping away. And then it's up to the engineer or the producer to, you know, pull them down a little in the verses, push them up a little in the choruses, you know, um, pull down the reverbs in the verse and push it up a little bit in the choruses, that kind of thing. You know, to add the dynamic that, you know, should have been there, and, and it is fixing, you know, um, but it's so common that that's the case um, that, uh, you know, I mean... 
it, this is a topic, this could go on for its own episode, um, just dynamics in music. Um, my, one of my favorite examples uh, was um, Kenny Aronoff, you know, you know, world-famous studio drummer, uh, John Mellencamp's drummer, uh, had, had this great video, and I'll try to find a link and put it, you know, put it somewhere for, uh, for people, uh, where he, uh, he talks about how he uh, is very careful about how he uh, rolls in the amount of rim he hits on the snare so that even when he brings the volume down on his snare hits, it still cracks and it still has you know, impact even at low volumes. And, you know, that's genius. That's what makes somebody great, not good, uh, is thinking about those things. Um, and it's, you know, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty rare. It's, again, it's the difference between great and good. So, since most people don't think about those things, uh, that winds up falling on the engineer, you know, to, to handle that and to, and to inject those dynamics. And that's why mixing is an art, and it's difficult. Um, so, no, mixing doesn't happen quickly and easily. Um, but, um, you know, I've found over the years, uh, as, you know, budgets have shrunk and... Uh, you know, the expectations for mixing have gotten, you know, tighter and tighter, you know. Uh, it didn't used to be unusual to, to, to say that, you know, a really proper professional mix of a full arrange, you know, arrangement, say rock music, you know, would take six to eight hours. And now the standard is more like two to four. And, um, you know, there's a price to pay for that. Um, and no, it's not going to be as good. Um, you know, anybody who's really done this can tell you it's, it's, it's pretty easy to spend, you know, an hour picking out the right reverbs, you know, but you're not going to do that if the mix is expected to be done in three or four hours. You're going to grab a preset or you're going to, you know, maybe your own preset, you know, but, uh, you know, you're going to reach for, uh, you know, um, standards because you have to move on you have to get it done. So mixing's a big deal. Um, and it's tough because again, musicians generally don't understand it. Uh, my recommendation to you as a musician, uh, is be there as much as, you know, like, you know, they generally say, let the engineer, uh, I generally say, <laughs> let me as an engineer, you know, do the boring part first, like, you know, the first hour or two of getting the drums together and then come in with fresh ears. And that's great advice in general. But if you want to learn, if you want to learn how this is done and be able to adjust your expectations and, and actually, and, and, and have more of an influence in how it's done, uh, you know, come in, you know, sit for it. But, Sit in the back, you know, sit in the couch and watch it being done, pay attention and uh, and see like how involved it is to actually put together a mix. And, you know, the, if nothing else, it just gives you a more realistic sense of budgeting and what, you know, what it takes to, to do it correctly. Um, so that's my advice. Um, but... Um, Fortunately, there's been a lot of improvements over the years, and I mean, right now, uh, different engineers have different attitudes about this, and there's all different styles of going about this. I know engineers that just throw the most expensive, best gear they can at you know recording, and then don't have, and then and then have less to do in mixing, and that's totally valid. Um, for me, uh, I always look at it like I don't really know the song yet. So I try to leave myself as many options as possible for mixing. And then I make a point 
of mixing uh, what they call in the box, so entirely in the computer using software. Reason being that it is 100% recallable and easily recallable. And that gives us the chance to do drafts of mixes. And then so I can send a band a first draft. They can give me their thoughts. We can make changes. You know, I, I like to work that way. It's, it's a, you know, I find it uh, a productive way to get closer to what, you know, everybody really wants. Um, okay, so that's mixing. Um, and then so there's one final uh uh, stage of production, and that's mastering. And that, again, this gets even more arcane and, and, and uh, you know, uh, um, shrouded in, in mystery. Um, and the, the term black art is used for mastering, and there's good reason for that. Uh, and there's very few musicians I run into who actually have any idea what mastering is about. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what the sort of the company line is on mastering and, and, what the, and give you uh, the overview, and then we'll get into the realities of how it actually goes for us second um which is uh okay so at its base you know uh goal the idea of mastering is to uh it's the they call it the icing on the cake so um it's basically it's the final opportunity to affect the sound before going to production or release in this case um and if you're if you have uh, multiple songs, uh, the general goal is that the listener does not have to touch uh, any dials, uh, but from song to song, you know that the bass, the treble, the volume, the vocal level, all these things are consistent from song to song, so the listener has a smooth experience. And then uh, pull that lens back even further, and you say that. Is you want to make it uh, consistent with uh, the general standard of professional uh, music in general, and, um, and that's a bit of a moving target. But uh, but it's also not. <laughs> um, you know, you want to. Uh, you know, within the realm of professionally acceptable, there's a galaxy of differences, but there is professionally acceptable, and um, and then. Uh, so, so that would affect that's that'd be a reason to even have one song, even if you're just doing a single, still like do a mastering stage just to think about how it's going to play against other professional materials so that if it's shuffled you know with Tom Petty or somebody else, you know run DMC whoever because uh, <laughs> how old I am uh, Lizzo, whoever uh, it'll you know sound reasonable. Um, so uh, one huge, huge, huge topic in mastering that's too big for this uh, episode, but we'll do a whole episode on it probably, is uh, the loudness and, and how loud things are. Uh, just to, to tell that as shortly as I possibly can, um, when music went digital and started getting released on CDs, um, digital sound has an absolute ceiling of how loud it can go. Uh, analog sound does not. Analog can, can distort and get louder. Uh, digital has an absolute uh, you know, ceiling. And so what happened was uh, when they started releasing uh, music digitally, uh, they, of course, they made the loudest point in the music hit that ceiling, and they figured, okay, we're done. That's as loud as this can go. 
And then what happened was producers started, you know, uh, saying, well, I want my record to be louder than the next guy's when it's on the radio. So what they started doing, since they couldn't get any louder on the top end, they started squashing upward. So from the quietest parts in the music, they started pushing that up against the ceiling and literally compressing the dynamic range, the di- meaning uh, the range from the softest part of the music to the loudest part. And so, say, uh, you know, uh, in 1980, that dynamic range might have been 20 dB or 22 dB, um, which is dB is another thing, too. That's uh, a bit of, you have to qualify. That. Uh, in digital, it's measured in dBFS, which stands for FS is for full scale, and full scale is that ceiling of zero where you can't go any higher and and digital sound is measured in negative numbers down from that so uh so the dynamic range the softest to the loudest part of a song might have been from negative 20 dbfs to zero uh over the years with with producers wanting to get louder and louder and louder and louder that dynamic range has squashed to the point where the general accepted standard of loudness um for, like for an average level of loudness, uh, the RMS uh, root mean squared is what that stands for, but it's the average loudness. Uh, you know, these days is above negative ten. So it's so for a dynamic range of you know eight dBFS, which is or or seven or sometimes less, and it's absurd. And and it's one of the reasons why when you try to listen to an entire album now, you're just tired you know it just it beats you up because there's no uh breathing in it anymore um and and one of the big tricks of mastering is to is to have such a limited dynamic range but still have the music you know have impact and still you know uh feel good um there was a moment uh a few years back it was a metallica record i have to, i forgot which one but uh where they limited the dynamic range so much that even metalheads even metallica fans rejected it and they were returning the album in droves because it sounded terrible and ever since then there's been a little pushback and and things sort of eased off a little bit but it's still pretty bad it's still yeah, if you turn in uh, a master, uh, whether it's a song or an album, with an average level below negative ten, it's it's not going to compete well. Is the God's honest truth, um, and that's sad, but that's the truth. Um, so it really is uh, a skill and an art trying to get a record to sound good, a record to get music to sound good um, in that limited dynamic range. Um, and that's it's also a, a real trick if you have a mix where everybody loves it and it sounds great, um, but it has a dynamic range of 15 or 20, you know, God forbid, um, dBFS. And then as a mastering engineer, you're charged with, okay, make this eight, but make it sound exactly the same. That's very difficult. Um, you know, there's something called the Flechter, uh, I'm messing it up. <laughs> The Fletcher Munson curve um, that uh, where yeah the human hearing uh, perceives bass frequencies and treble frequencies differently and and as you raise the volume the the bass gets uh, logarithmically louder than the, than the than the treble and so on um, so as you squash a piece of music uh, you change the balance uh, between the bass and the treble and um, 
uh, sort of sad but interesting uh, phenomena is uh, since so many people were doing that and not compensating for that change of balance, you've almost gotten a new standard in uh, in how much bass is acceptable in in a final master these days. And it's, it's uh, there's a lot more than used to be. And and I think I think that's really where that comes from is people just not compensating for that change when they've squashed the music and the bass has grown and and they haven't you know, compensated for it. Um, so to get a, a master to sound like the mix, but louder is no easy thing. Um, so, um, so that's part of what goes into mastering. There's a lot more, um, but that's, uh, that's a general idea. And so the mastering engineer then uh, produces whatever is going to uh, go into production. Um, so if you're making <laughs> CDs or vinyl, uh, if it's going to a pressing plant like Disc Makers in New Jersey, um, you'll produce uh, what's called a DDP uh, file, and and that can be uploaded uh, directly to their website or any other pressing plant's website. And that contains all the information that a CD normally has about uh, song spacing and order and CD text and everything, basically. Um, and uh, and it's also, it's actually a great way to, uh, to send uh, an album's worth of material because uh, unlike a CD, uh, DDPs are, are, are similar to copying a file from one hard drive to another in that it does not introduce uh, errors into the data. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, when writing a DDP, uh, usually uh, they even introduce uh, an error-checking algorithm to make sure that it is a bit-for-bit -bit copy. Uh, whenever you write a CD or any kind of optical media, uh, DVD or CD, um, a necessary uh, evil is that um, uh, errors are introduced, uh, blur errors, there's different terms for it. Uh, back in the day uh, when, when that was the standard, like delivering a, a master CD to a pressing plant, you know, it was a big if about whether uh, the CD would have an acceptably low number of errors to be worthy of mass production. Um, and the people that really were on their game, the mastering engineers that were really on their game, had error checkers and would check them themselves before sending them out. But, you know, uh, pressing plants would have to check them so that they didn't ruin 50,000 blank CDs. Um, so... Um, and occasionally you get uh, a master rejected for too many errors. Um, so we're, you know, <laughs> I don't even know. People don't even listen to CDs anymore. They don't even come in cars anymore. But uh, but if you're getting CDs made, DDP is the way to go. Uh, if not, then it doesn't matter. Then you you, know, you make WAV files, and uh, and most uh, websites uh, that do distribution, CD Baby, Bandcamp, these the like, uh, want you to upload WAV files and. Uh, and then they will usually do take care of converting those to MP3 or or, uh, or the Apple format AAC uh, themselves. Um, uh, so uh, there's uh, there's one exception to that, which is, and I don't know if they fixed it, but uh, Reverb Nation has a, has always had a really terrible way of handling uh, files, uh, where they would. Um, 
reprocess MP3s uh, to a very low bit rate. And I don't know if they still do that, but uh, it would destroy sound quality. And I used to have to make special versions of MP3s just for Reverb Nation for artists. Um, and, uh, you know, we can get into that later. But um, that's... Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting point. Anyway, so uh, yeah, mastering, we're going to do definitely at least one whole show, if not many more on mastering. It's it's a fascinating thing. And that used to be my primary business, actually. That's why I can go on about it um, when I was in my studio in New York in the 90s. Um, okay, so great. Um, so that's those are the stages of production. And this is why, you know, this is if you do it correctly, it's not a rush job. Uh, you, know, you, you really do need to do all those things to do it right. Um, so let, you know, just to review, <laughs> we had pre-production, recording, editing, mixing, mastering. Okay, and I don't know if I just left something out, but uh, that's you know uh, that's pretty much what you're looking at uh, to do a proper recording. Um, okay, so uh, a few, uh, so one other uh, so another point that's actually really important and worth discussing, and it's and it's a it's a little controversial, uh, is what they call the grid. Uh, so in Pro Tools or any other software that records. Um, you know, you have the option of recording to a metronome, a click track, if you will. And, um, you know, for musicians, all you're worrying about is, oh, my God, do I have to stick to this, you know, rigid authority of where the beat is? Well, the reason why you do that is because the software itself is numbering the, you know, the, the bars. And then if you, you know, if, if you are conformed to that system... It's a computer. Then it knows what to do with it. If you don't, then the computer doesn't know what to do with it. Then you're just a blob, and and it doesn't, you know. And the computer has no idea what you played or where you played it. But if the computer does know what you played and where you played it, then it can do all kinds of things. Um, not only from fixing timing, but copying and pasting very easily. Um, and you know, uh, it 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 opens up a lot of possibilities if you can do that. If the if it's appropriate for the song. Um, now there's, um, I've actually heard lots of stories of engineers, studios, and producers telling artists that they will not, uh, they refuse to work with them if they will not do it to a click. And, you know, I understand where they're coming from on that because, uh, you know, um, the chances are pretty likely that if the reason you're not recording to a click is because you can't record to a click because you don't have that skill as a musician, that the results are probably going to be not so great. You know, uh, the, you know, if your timing is wavering because of a lack of skill and then it's there's no reference, you know, for the engineer or the producer uh, where the bar is supposed to be, um, then it's very it's it's hard to impossible to to fix it. And I've been down this road many many times. Uh, I you know, and the your only reference is is the producer's ears, and at that point, and um, and it makes copying and pasting difficult to impossible. Um, you know, because if the tempo has changed uh, from one verse to the other, you can't do anything about that. And um, so, uh, you know, what you'll do, what will happen is uh, I'll get I'll get uh, musicians complaining or not complaining, but just uh, bringing up the point that you know that, that 
you know, that they don't want to lose uh, the flow of their, you know, their, their sense of rhythm and it'll feel natural. And they don't, they don't want to sound, you know, like a robot, metronomic. And, and you know, uh, the truth is it's an excuse. It really is an excuse. Um, and, the, the, you know, the truth is if you have the skill to play to a metronome well, uh, and you you know you want to choose not to, to to because a song needs to breathe in a certain way, that's a totally valid choice. That's great, but you know be honest with yourself. You know like do you practice to a metronome? Like do you have great timing? Do you know uh, and uh, are you that person? You know or is it just an excuse? Um, because. Um, yeah, the problem is, you know, when you have four or five different people and none of them have particularly solid rhythm, you have four or five different interpretations of where the beat is. And, you know, even if you're quote unquote playing together, you know, you're not quite together. And the thing is, that can still happen even with a metronome. You, then you get four or five interpretations of where the metronome is. But the difference is, if there, as long as there's a metronome, that is the absolute you know, uh, measuring stick. And then the producer or the engineer can work with each musician individually, each instrument, and conform it to that one you know, measurement. Whereas if there's no guide, if there's no middle, <laughs> you know, and, and the drummer's a little ahead and the bass player's a little behind and the guitar player's even more ahead and, and so on and so forth, there's, you know, what do you do with that? You know, it's basically, it's a picture out of focus and there's no focus. There's no, there's no clear to shoot for at that point. Um, what do you do? Move everybody to, to the drummer? Maybe. What if the drummer's rushing? You know, um, you know, what if the person who's really grooving right is the rhythm guitar player or the bass player or the tambourine player? You know, it doesn't, <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? Conform everybody to the tambourine? Maybe. I've, I've done it. It's a pain. Um, so that's why the click. And, uh, you know, um, and the best advice that I can give you as a musician is it doesn't have to be a click. That's the biggest revelation. It doesn't have to be a click. It doesn't have to be a metronome. You know, the, the, a click, I, I know it's cold and it can feel oppressive and it's, it can be hard to groove to a click. Fine, don't use it. Don't use a click. A click is not the only absolute reference of time. You can use a programmed drum loop, right? Um, you can use, uh, you can even make a loop. Okay, so I, I've had a lot of time to think about different solutions to this problem. And, you know, uh, one of the things that I've done is, is, is put up a, a, the cold click and then have a drummer just play you know, his verse pattern for five minutes to that click. And then all we have to do is find one bar, one bar where his feel is perfect. And then we can copy and loop that one bar of the drummer play, actually playing, and then he can play the song, and then you can map out the song that way, and you can do that with the verse pattern and the chorus pattern, you know, and, and no, you don't have fills, but at least you have the groove correct, feeling correct, on the grid, and and then you can map out the song, you know, the verses and choruses and whatever it is, and... And then the drummer can play again with that in their headphones as their reference. You know, that can be their click. So that's just one idea. There's a lot of ways to go about this. But at the end of the day, what you're going to end up with is a tight, solid performance that 
you know, sounds professional. It sounds like you did what you meant to do um, and where everybody's actually playing together. Um, and, you know, that's the goal. So um, these are the arguments for using the grid. Now, look, if a song has tempo movements, yeah, all bets kind of are off. Uh, if, if they're not serious, you can program them. You know, um, I mean, even if they are serious, you can program them. But it, it, the question is whether, you know, whether at that point, if the program is is even helpful or not. But um, but there's again, there's a lot of ways to handle it. So if there's the tempo change, you know, maybe you record it in parts. You know, and and you record each part separately, and then and then you know, sew them together. Um, you know, it's important to. Uh, in the same way that the thing about playing with natural timing and feel is kind of an excuse, um, so is playing live altogether. You know, I mean, like, look, do you play every day? Do you gig five days a week? You know, like, do you have such a cohesive energy together that it can't be duplicated? And, you know, sure, okay, great. Then then, then absolutely, let's, let's all play live together. But, you know... If if together you're not tight, then what's the point? You know, then you're not actually gaining anything. Um, so again, these are excuses. We're trying to make a you know a product, a piece of art. You know, we're trying in the same way that movies are shot out of sequence, and and you know, and and everything on that you know in that frame is controlled. The lighting, the you know. Everything is controlled. It's the same thing with a record or you know, with a recording. Um, you know, so if you have to do it in pieces, do it in pieces. Who cares? As long as it comes together well, and and in the end, you get you know the piece of music that you need. That's all that matters. Um, so you know, so that's that's another way to do a tempo change. Um, and and also think about things like okay, do you have an intro that's slower and that maybe is only one instrument? Um, you know, just do it separately and and just you know, just do it free and and then just you know edit it in. You know, just put it in front of whatever you've done. Um, you know, that kind of thing is really you know um, freeing yourself from trying to do everything. You know, from from the um, from the model of a, of a live performance, top to bottom, freeing yourself from that is very helpful, and, and being realistic about what it is you're trying to create. Um, so, anyway, that's the grid. Uh, and so the only other thing I wanted to say um, is, I okay, well, not the only other thing, but uh, another. Okay, so the next important thing is gear. And and not only gear, but you in person. <laughs> you know, it's 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 being ready for recording. Um, you know, think of this as if you know you're an athlete, right? And uh, think about what athletes go through. You know, if they have a big game coming up, if they have a track meet, if they have whatever. You know, they're worrying about you know, you know their shoes, their pads, their gear. They're worrying about their sleep. They're worrying about their diet. They're worrying about you know everything that goes into what they're going to bring that day. 
And, you know, they're not going into the Super Bowl going, hey, man, I'm just going to do me, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of testing my limits, so I'm going to act like it's, you know, uh, you know, April, you know, it doesn't matter, you know. No, they're training for this. You know, and in the same way that sports and, and athleticism is muscle memory, so is music. It's muscle memory. Rhythm is muscle memory. You know, it's anybody can really anybody can learn it. Um, you know, I actually went through the experience of I've been a musician since I was seven, and and you know, and by the time I was 21, I'd been playing for years and I'd been in bands and everything. And three days before I was about to start music school, my thumb got crushed, and I mean, it broken in 14 places. To this day, I have a plate and five screws in my left thumb. And I went through two years of music school, music school without being able to play any instruments. I mean, thank God my major was composition, but that's kind of how I got into engineering. I couldn't play. So when I went back to start playing again, guess what? Two years of not playing, I lost my rhythm. And I didn't, I didn't think about it. I'd always had it. You know, it was like walking. I didn't, you know, I didn't know I could lose it. And so I didn't, if I, I mean, if I had tried to keep it up, I could have, but I didn't. And so I lost my rhythm and it was really weird. And it really was like learning to walk again. But you know what? Since I'd already had it before, I kind of recognized the road markers along the way of getting it back. And you can get it back, you know. And, and if I can get it back, then that means anybody can get it in the first place. It's just muscle memory. But it's no different from any other kind of physical training. A little bit every day is worth, you know, is the only way to do it, really. I, I would say it's worth more than, than doing a, a whole lot once. But it's, it's not even more. It's just that's the right way to do it. You won't get it if you only do two hours once a week. It has to be in increments. So... Um, so train, train, it matters. You know, if you know you're going to be recording, you know, in, in a couple of weeks, you know, practice, you know, every day. It doesn't take much, you know, 15, 20 minutes is all it takes to see a difference. In two weeks, you'll see a difference. You'll be a different musician, particularly if you don't normally do it. Um, and it, again, it doesn't have to be to a metronome. It just needs to be to a solid, absolute rhythm source. You know, I got my rhythm in the first place by just jamming along to records, you know, as a teenager. You know, but the rhythm source was solid, and so I developed solid rhythm. You know, um, so, you know, that's the personal side of it, you know, and everybody, everybody should be doing that in the band. Rhythm matters for the singer. It matters for everyone. Um, but, you know, go a little nuts before the recording. You know, get yourself in shape. Um, you know, get get that part of your brain going, and so that's that's for rhythm. For singers, it's a special thing, um, and I, I so few actually do this, but you really need to do this. As the songs that you're going to record, sit down at a keyboard or a guitar, but make sure it's in tune, and figure out the melody that you're singing, every note. And it's you know you, what you have to worry about is the leap from note to note, the interval. So, and you got to practice every single one and do it against, you know, the instrument, and and that's so that you know you're right. And and you know again, it's muscle memory. You're you're training 
you know, your muscles to to reproduce these pitches correctly. And um, and obviously breathing training, that's a whole other issue. But, you know, if you're not doing that, start, you know, find some YouTubes um, and, and get your diaphragm breathing happening if, if you don't already have it. But, but just for the pitch of the exact songs that you're working on, you know, uh, make sure you're in the right key for you, you know, uh, make sure that it really is the best key for your voice. Um, you know, guitar players can slap a capo on if they need to. Keyboard players can hit transpose if they need to. Um, you know, make sure it, the music has to come to the singer. You know, your voice is your voice. You don't have a transpose button. So uh, everyone else has to, has to come to you. So make sure you're in the best key for your voice uh, for every song. And, uh, you know, and, and it's, your body is your instrument. You know, cut back in the caffeine, smoking, please. Uh, sleep, you know, sleep is the most important thing, really. Um, and, you know, get in, same thing, get in shape for the day and, uh, and bring your A-game to the studio. Um, and then, you know, the obvious, do all of that for your instruments. <laughs> Don't walk in with a guitar that's not been set up, you know, um, the, the the fact you know it's bring it you know if you don't know how to do it yourself bring it to a professional you know to a guitar store or whatever and get you know get new strings get the neck aligned get, make sure the intonation's right make sure there's no buzzes check the electronics make sure nothing you know they don't have grounding problems make sure you have a new battery uh, break those strings in a little bit before you come in, but just a little bit, you know, uh, just so that they don't, you know, go out of tune anymore. And, uh, you know, be prepared. Make sure you have good cables that, you know, that aren't going to buzz and that don't have grounding issues. Uh, check your effects. Make sure, again, no grounding issues. Um, if you need to, you know, borrow better stuff than what you own. Or if you're going to a studio that has great stuff, talk to the studio about whether you can use that instead you know they might have guitars that you don't have or an amp that you don't have uh, or effects that you don't have and so um, that's one of the great benefits of going to a pro studio so avail yourself of it you know um, please <laughs> I mean I have tons of that stuff and I love it when people come in and use my stuff because it makes my job easier it makes your product better um, so uh, definitely uh, do that but um, you know if you're a drummer, you know, new sticks. Uh, it doesn't have to be new heads, but make sure they're in good shape, you know. Um, and again, uh, you know, use this as a recording, you know. It's, uh, you know, note there's, there doesn't have to be any pictures, you know. You, if you, you, you may like Yamaha drums or whatever, and that's great, but if the studio has a killer DW kit and it's better than your Yamahas, use the DWs, just don't tell anybody, right? So, uh, you know, or whatever it has to be. Um, but the point is, do what's best for the recording. And do what's appropriate for the recording. You know, I, I've had metal bands come in and use my, my rock kit, and they should have been on a big old metal kit. They should have had, you know, a 24-inch kick drum and, and cannons. And, and, you know, and then when the recording doesn't have cannons, they want to know why. And it's like, well, we didn't use cannons because, you know, I didn't know that when you came in. Um, so... You know, think about those things before the recording, not after. Okay. <laughs> All right. This has been long, but it's been good. This is, look, everything in this podcast, you know, I mean, you may have heard a lot of things you already know, hopefully you heard some things you don't know, but these are issues that come up to on a daily basis for me in my studio. I see it happen all the time 
Um, these are questions I get all the time. And, you know, by all means, let's continue the conversation. You know, uh, I'm going to be posting links to these podcasts on social media. So, you know, hit me in the comments. Um, and uh, again, my, the social media uh, for the studio, which is me, um, is always the same. It's at Hopetown Sound, the name of the studio, at Hopetown Sound. That's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, all the same. And the website for the studio is the same, hopetownsound.com. So uh, please hit me up. Let's make this uh, back and forth. Let's have a conversation. Yeah, I'm I'm glad to answer questions. And if you got better ideas, you know, hit me with them. I want to learn too. Um, and if you could do me a favor, if you're enjoying this podcast, help me grow. Give me a five star rating on iTunes. You know, let let's build this. Um, and there's so much good stuff coming. There's so much good discussions coming. Uh, the interviews that are coming are going to be awesome. I promise. So uh, stick with me and let's let's uh, I'll see you on the next one. Okay, take care. Bye bye.